Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me is a man for whom I am foregoing my invitation to the Met Gala this evening. It's James Hall. I mean, you really we could just wait, you know, and do this tomorrow if you wanted. Well, here, the 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 thing is that you know I, I was told that wearing you know Converse All Stars with uh, an old pair of jeans t shirt and a backpack frontwards with my poodle in the front was um, frowned upon. Mm. So uh, the real yeah, reason. So I'm here instead. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so uh, this is anyway. this is an educational and hopefully some entertainment podcast. We may have positions in the companies mentioned, uh, and we try to say so when we do, but that can change after we record, of course. This is not investment advice. Get your investment advice somewhere else, or better yet, do your own research, and uh, good luck out there. Yeah, and uh, as always, techno.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China tech. Uh, today, we have a very special guest joining us for the second time on the podcast. Uh, it's John Artman and uh, folks that folks that have been a long time listener of the pod, listeners of the podcast may know him as uh, the old uh, editor in chief at Technode. Uh, and he is also uh, in a former life uh, helped get this podcast going as well. Uh, but right now he's at South China Morning Post and was one of the, the many minds behind uh, the most recent China Internet report, which they put out every year. This is their fourth one. And we're going to talk exactly about about what exactly is happening with regulation across tech and kind of break down for our audience you know, from a policy perspective what the government is doing. Uh, we've talked a lot about regulation on this podcast, and this is kind of our opportunity to actually really get into what is actually happening rather than just referencing it abstractly. But uh, but first, I do want us to cover some of the news that's more recent. It's September 13 right now where I am, 14 where you are. Uh, the big news that is happening at the moment when it comes to Chinese business and, and tech and finance uh, is is Evergrande. The, the massive and heavily, heavily, heavily indebted Chinese real estate giant that I think we have been following as, you know, this looking at this giant, you know, all the debt that they're carrying, all the leverage that they're putting on, you know, with quite amusement for a while. And right now it does seem as though the chickens are finally coming home to roost. But the question is, you know, what is the systemic risk that they pose? And also, um, is the government going to do anything about it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if we go back a couple episodes, we talked about, or I mentioned the, the three mountains. Real estate is one of those. And Evergrande is, I think, the largest real estate developer, has a ton of debt uh, that's onshore, offshore. They have bonds. They have wealth management products. I think they have bank loans. They have a little bit of everything we're seeing in the news. Some people are, you know, as kind of normal in China, if you um, bought into a wealth management product or trust product or something or peer-to-peer loan kind of platform, and you're you're uh, not getting your money back or there's a risk of losing money, you go and, uh, you know, get some people together and you go kind of protest or, you know, stand outside the offices and yell at people. That <laughs> seems to be happening with Evergrande, uh, at least in... I think a couple cities, um, but there seems to be one that looks like it's a little more serious uh, at their office. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, in the, in real estate and with, you know, the government trying to kind of lower the costs or get rid of these three mountains on people's backs, uh, Evergrande, I think is the biggest, uh, whale to watch. Yeah. You know, the, the, the big problem is, you know, if you want to like, how do you, um, like stop something from becoming a systemic problem. Right. Um, and then also at the same time, try to pull back on the moral hazard or implicit guarantee uh, stuff that's been kind of a little bit of a problem in, in the Chinese economy for a while. You know, how, how do you kind of manage both those things? And I, I kind of characterize it like, you know, if the government is going to eventually step in and bail out Evergrande bondholders or shareholders or wealth management product holders or whatever, they need to do it just at least, I mean, it has to be before it becomes a systemic problem and trying to time that I can kind of consider it like a, trying to catch a, a, a spinning sword in the air, you know, and <laughs> yeah. there's a probably more than one sword in this case. And it basically, the, the, the point is it won't be easy. And, uh, you know, the potential positive, I guess, is that, you know, if there is some collateral damage, which I think there probably would be or will be, uh, that it could serve to reduce the implicit guarantee that kind of many people believe in and um, potentially bring some kind of risk-mindedness to the property sector. So that would be... I mean, well, we we, we spoke before about, you know, I think we had this podcast, probably, this episode probably two plus years ago, where we talked about the... Maybe it was even three years ago. Sorry, I'm I'm losing track of time here. No, it was it was it was two years. At least it was two plus years ago. And we talked about Huarong, which was kind of this this dead this bad debt manager that the government essentially tried to unwind. And uh, at when they just started, even the beginning of starting to you know write off some of that debt, then the the systemic contagion was so severe that they just kind of stopped it and it was something where the the question always was you know how would they end up doing this to some of these bigger these bigger uh risks like you know a company like like evergrand and i think what we've seen throughout this year is that so many of these assumptions that business people and investors have had about China and the Chinese economy and the relationship between the economy and the authorities in Beijing have been challenged, whether it be you know what we're seeing in tech regulation, which we're going to talk about later today, but also about, for example, how they've treated foreign capital. What we've seen this year is that a lot of the preferential treatment that foreign investors have gotten, they're not getting anymore. And what we're seeing as well right now is that a lot of that implicit guarantee when it comes to a company like Evergrande, you know, might be out the window and we, they might be saying right now that, you know, they might have the stomach to, to endure, you know, this, this kind of failure. I and mean, we'll see what happens, but you know, it's at least an interesting thing to watch. That's for sure. Yeah. It's uh yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens, man. Evergrande's uh, down 8% already this morning. So <laughs> I mean, they're, and they're just so, so big. I don't know how they're going to anyways. It's, it's, it, we'll see what happens. And by the time this comes out, we're probably going to have more news. Anyway. Right. Yeah. But, but what I'm kind of going to curious to see is who's going to be taking the loss and who's going to be kind of made whole. I feel like, I feel like overseas bondholders are probably going to be kind of screwed here. 
and potentially mm-hmm. onshore wealth management product holders. Maybe, you know, if they can cause a big enough ruckus, you know, we'll get uh, get some of their capital back. I'm probably not all of it. Some of these, I mean, supposedly some of these wealth management products are offer returns, you know, in the high teens or even 20%. So that's extremely high risk wealth management products that, uh, I mean, there's, there's definitely no guarantees behind it. But for some reason, people that buy this stuff still think, you know, they have a chance of getting their, you know, a guarantee at some point. So I, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that would be consistent with, I think, the logic that we've seen this year where the foreign capital is being given lower priority. And we actually talk about this uh, a little bit with John Artman when we talk about, uh, you know, the IPOs. So uh, do we want to move on to that? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, SCMP's John Artman. Joining us uh, for a second appearance is a man who in a past life, was the patron saint of the China Tech Investor Podcast and has moved on to other things uh, at South China Morning Post. Uh, but it's it's John Artman. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's exciting to be to be back. Yeah, it's great. I just uh, so the the listeners can hear a little inside baseball. You know, I um, you know, John was at TechNode for a very, very long time, and he he helped us get the podcast set up. Uh, but we were we were talking with PR with the PR folks at uh, at SCMP, and <laughs> we were talking about how we'd like to discuss you know this report on the podcast. And they're like, "Oh, we have a great editor. His name is John Artman, who would love to to join you." And I was like, "Oh, yeah. Well, J- John Artman uh, is definitely familiar with the podcast." So <laughs> it was mm. uh, a very uh, a kind of fortunate um, situation. But anyways, but uh, w- one thing you know, listeners can go to and look at the the um the south china morning post china internet report this is the fourth time i believe that that y'all have done the um the china internet report um the what i i think is most helpful uh for our listeners is that we've talked so much about regulation regulation has been the theme in this year uh in a similar way to for example how you know, the U.S.-China trade war back in, you know, 2019, that was a theme. And COVID in 2020, that was the theme. Uh, but a lot, I think most of our listeners don't quite understand, and I even sometimes struggle to understand, how exactly it's playing out. It's so many different regulatory agencies. It's so many different themes. And in your report, you really seem to kind of categorize it and the di- categorize the different emphasis emphases, uh, you know, I, I think pretty, pretty well. So um, can you tell us about how you look at the different areas in which they're, they're regulating and um, kind of how you've categorized this? Yeah. So um, we looked at four different uh, big areas, uh, antitrust, fintech, uh, data protection, and uh, cryptocurrency. And so I think if you kind of look at it big picture wise, there, it's, all, it's all related somehow. Um, you know, technology for a long, long time has been uh, relatively unregulated. If we look at, I mean, one of the best examples, I think, is um, the ride hailing boom and bust, where uh, in most cases, you know, these companies were allowed uh, almost a free hand in terms of the number of uh, bikes that they were allowed to put on the streets, the amount of kind of chaos that they were allowed to create on the streets, and, ter- and also the 
externalizing a lot of the, the the management the management costs. Now, on kind of a city to city or or uh, maybe uh, county to county level, a uh, very local level, there was some regulation and some kind of uh, control in terms of how these bike rental companies were uh, were operating and how they were externalizing costs. Um, but on the whole, there wasn't really any kind of national coordinated uh, control of uh, these these companies, which we kind of categorize into the technology industry. Another example of a, of a kind of a, a, a chaotic and almost a capital destructive boom and bust cycle was the, the group buying boom and bust from mm. 2013, 2014, and where uh, Meituan uh, got its start as well. Uh, and then again, it's just there was fraud, there was, you know, companies were um, were opening and closing overnight, investors were losing their shirts and, and, and all sorts of things. It was relatively unregulated. But we can see that starting from October, when the central government came down hard on Ant Group, that uh, the tone has changed. Uh, things things have changed, and you know when um, when the Ant Group uh, IPO was forced to uh, to stop, there was some really big questions at the time about okay, so is this a one off? Is this about Jack Ma? Is this about Alibaba or or something like that? Or is it part of something bigger? And honestly, it's not until almost a year later. That we can say definitively that it is part of something uh, much, much mm. bigger. But sorry, before we go any further, I just need to mention that um, the South China Morning Post is owned uh, by Alibaba. Uh, however, they have no say in, in any of our coverage, and uh, they have no say in what I'm going to uh, to talk about for this uh, po- uh, episode of the podcast. But also on the flip side, I don't speak for them at all. I don't represent right. uh, Alibaba or or Ant Group in anything that uh, that uh, I say here. So I wanted to, since we're talking, since I. Since we kind of started off with Ant Group, I felt I had to uh, to mention that right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. But again, so you know, it started with antitrust. So it started with, so excuse me, it started with fintech, and then it's antitrust, and then uh, we can see crypto and uh, data security um, as well. So, like I said, I think it's kind of all really kind of uh, it's all connected uh, in the sense that the uh, the bureaucracy, the regulatory bureaucracy, is I think kind of finding excuses to flex its muscles in a certain way, but also Mm. addressing problems that have been there uh, for quite some time, but they weren't necessarily empowered to do much about it. And now with these new laws, with new enforcement mechanisms, they they have that uh, that power to start enforcing some of these rules. Yeah, I, I think that absolutely the the political element, the power struggle element to it is is absolutely, you know, and something that is important, but it's also not really entirely what we focus on here. And it's not really what your report focuses on as much. So let's actually dig into some of these areas. And let's talk about the nitty gritty and how these companies are actually impacted. You know, you mentioned Alibaba. So let's dig into you know what they have really been having to deal with, which is antitrust and the way that they've had in any in many ways, a a monopoly over certain areas of the Chinese economy and regulators are, are attempting to break that down. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting because it's in a sense the, a lot of the regulatory action hasn't been about um, oh, okay, so you have market dominance, therefore we need to uh, break you up or or do something about it. Uh, a lot of it's at least you look at when the fine for Alibaba was announced, uh, when you look at when the investigation of Meituan uh, was announced. Uh, much of it's about how these companies uh, uh, use or in some cases, abuse their uh, their dominating position. Um, and so in both the cases of Alibaba 
and Meituan, the regulatory action was framed in such a way that um, it was about protecting the rights of people uh, who rely on the platform for their uh, income. Uh, so within Alibaba's case, there was this problem of um, uh, uh, picking one from two, RCUNE, um, where sellers, uh, usually small businesses, were forced to uh, to use Alibaba's platform exclusively. Uh, and so if they uh, tried to do a promotion or tried to have some publicity or even you know some kind of discounts on another platform besides Alibaba, they would get shut out. Um, either they would um, just not appear on uh, search results, or they would pe- or they would uh, appear low down, or you know their store or brand would just not get uh, not get promoted. Meituan is very similar, uh, and so again, it's the way the investigation has been framed is around protecting the rights of of merchants um, who uh, sell on the platform, so these uh, restaurants and other kind of uh, lifestyle services um, that are on the platform, and so it's it's really kind of interesting, you know, it's not so much like, oh, you know, Alibaba has been shutting out Tencent from using the platform or Tencent, you know, WeChat has been shutting out Alibaba from its platforms. It's really more of been more much more about kind of the way it's been framed, at least, is protecting the small guys, protecting the small and medium businesses that operate on these platforms. It's it's kind of interesting because, like, if you think about a merchant on these platforms, I mean, the platform itself has to solve the problem of discoverability. Like, how do you find like how do you decide which merchant store to show up in the search results you know is it all based on kind of like an adwords you're paying for placement or is there you know if a one merchant has a higher take rate with you maybe because of uh exclusivity you know you can you know if if you want to emphasize the exclusivity you can kind of promote them if you want to emphasize the monetization you can take the ones with a higher take rate it's kind of interesting. I have heard, though, that even despite these <laughs> fines, that there are still some things like uh, you can get a lower take rate if you are exclusive on that platform, for example. Um, and I won't say exactly which mm-hmm. ones I've heard, but there is still kind of exists some of this because it is sort of like a negotiation thing, right? If you're going to agree to be on the platform, they kind of have to approve you. you. You agree to some sort of take rate and what they're doing and what you're, what you're providing and selling is, you know, the right stuff and quality and whatever. And so there is kind of a back and forth and you know, there is some negotiation going on there. So it's not as simple as just, I mean, you can set up a store, but if you want to like really get better access, better, better traffic, uh, you need to kind of talk to somebody. Right. And so it's, it's, I, I would say it's probably, yeah. So the, so the, the, I think the issue was the, the forced exclusivity, right? And so if you, um, were not exclusive, then there were punitive measures taken. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's really kind of the issue is forcing these merchants to pick two from one. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, if it's a negotiation around take rate and, and, and some other things, I think that's probably, it's still going to be in this gray area, but the, the very, very obvious is like, you know, I am the dominant platform. And so if you do not follow my rules and uh, do what I tell you to do, we're going to punish you. Right. I, I mean, there was one slide in your, in your report. Uh, that showed kind of the difference between, I think it was Galans, and maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, that had on their official store, they didn't have a 618 next to their, you know, listing. But then other <laughs> merchants that sell their products 
had a 618 next to their thing. So there's like all sorts of little ways that if you're like not involved or, you know, Mm. they can kind of still, uh, you know, if you're a consumer, you want the 618 because that means there's some kind of deal there and you're getting a discount or, yeah. So, Elliot, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. What's what's interesting to me, well, I mean, if you look at, like how that how antitrust is being discussed in like for example the US Congress is that i think for for a large part of the last century really even we've looked at at antitrust and monopolies as being where one company has so much power over the market that they can essentially gouge prices right that you can't mm-hmm. I, mean, I think diamonds are probably a really good example right that de beers essentially has a monopoly over diamonds and you know even though that they're they're relatively common we spend a lot of money for a diamond right but in these cases no one's really upset that at the prices that alibaba or or amazon here or meituan is offering but it's that these these companies are because there's so few of them that have that scale they're able to leverage their power and their size to pressure a number of people throughout you know a number or a number of entities uh, that they're dealing with whether it be vendors whether it be these you know these individuals who are for example you know doing you know, the Meituan deliveries or or whatnot and and so it it seems like the definition here of what is a monopoly is much more nebulous and applies to a lot more uh, actors that involve that are interact with the entity. Would that be? A, do you think a fair way to to explain it? I, 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 I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, John. Yeah. So I think I mean if you look at any of the big tech, whether it's Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan, uh, ByteDance, and you and you look at the market share, I don't think anyone really. I don't think depending on how you look at it, maybe you could argue that. One company has 51% or more of a certain market. And now that I think of it, Tencent in the music space uh, is is more than 50%. But if you look at e-commerce, for example, e-commerce is extremely competitive, right? So you have Alibaba, JD, uh, Pinduoduo, and then all the other, you know, Xiaohongshu or, or Red, uh, Moguzie, all these different um, e-commerce strategy-based companies. And so you look at that space specifically, and I don't think you can look at the market share and say that Alibaba, Taobao, Tibol, uh, Taobao Tmall were, you know, clearly dominant and, you know, more than 50% of the market or even anywhere close to uh, what we would traditionally call a monopoly. But the issue is, is that what they their their position was large enough where they could engage in anti-competitive behavior and i think that's that's really kind of the way to look at it it's about how companies are allowed to compete uh, and if you look mm-hmm. at the United States, for example, or the EU, uh, and you compare it to China, in, ter- in the way that companies are allowed to compete in China, uh, especially tech companies, it's highly unregulated. Again, you know, tech companies have had almost a free hand for the past decade plus, uh, whereas uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon, 
uh, to a certain degree, they've had to you know, deal with laws, competitive laws that are already on the books before the internet era. Uh, whereas um, with, with China, I think that on the one hand, you know, they didn't want to kill the golden goose uh, before it you know, laid its egg. But then on the other hand, um, you know, the kind of the regulatory framework wasn't really there uh, to tackle some of, these, some of these new issues. Also, I think that you know, when we look at the American definition of monopoly, it is a bit idiosyncratic. I mean, you compare it to uh, the EU, the EU and the American uh, definitions are, are quite different, which is why um, Facebook and Google have had a harder time in the EU than they have, uh, you know, politics aside, uh, than they have had in the United States. Uh, because in the US, we look at it in terms of, you know, price gouging, price manipulation, and things like that. So using your uh, monopoly position to control prices and to charge more than uh, fair value, etc. Uh, whereas the EU has been looking at much more in terms of kind of uh, the ability to uh, influence the marketplace. And I think that China is kind of taking something, uh, taking a page out of the EU's uh, playbook on this one. So who wins here? So we, we've talked about them taking down some of these walled gardens, for example, like how, you know, before you wouldn't be able to set, to share like an Alibaba link on WeChat. The, also the kind of the, with the Arshwani, right, the, the, the policy of making a vendor uh, or a brand choose either Alibaba or JD, for example. Uh, but who, who at the end of the game here is the winner? Is it the consumer? Is it the, who does this benefit? Well, I mean, it's not clear that it's a, it's a big detriment for these for for Alibaba or any other any other company. You got to remember that these companies have been ultra successful, um, and they've been ultra successful in part in part not not completely because of their ability to uh, leverage um, their 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 market power. So I would say that you know if you look at the overall business model for any of these companies, uh, yes, of course they are going to be affected, but the underlying fundamentals uh, and you know their ability to uh, serve their customers, I think, is going to is 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 going to stay consistent. In terms of who wins, it's 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 hard to say. Um, I think that in general, I think the consumers are one of the winners. I mean, if uh, if consumers have more choice, and that choice is is given out of you know free will to a certain degree. That's always a good thing uh, for the consumer, and then also I think just uh, smaller smaller companies and merchants that depend on that depend on these platforms. Because you know if you think about it in terms of you know uh, physical markets, you, any any seller, anyone who has something to sell should be able to go to whatever trade fair. Uh, whatever flea market, whatever farmer's market they want to go to. And I think that that mm. a lot of this is just kind of moving more and more towards that. In terms of kind of, you know, is Alibaba or JD or, or Pinduoduo going to going to win because of that? You know, because if, I mean, is, if your question is, is, is Pinduoduo in a better position vis-a-vis Alibaba because of this? I would say no, uh, not mm. not really. Um, they're both pursuing different strategies, and again, like I said, I think the fundamental business model is not going to change very much because of this. Yeah, I'm I'm curious how how it plays out, whether it increases the cost for the merchants or whether the merchants kind of get lower cost. I mean, like how how it all kind of plays out there, because I think you know if you could say you were going to be exclusive and then you could actually have lower cost potentially you know, that might go away. So the cost might go up for merchants. So I I think there's a lot of variables and it's very, very hard to um, predict what's going to happen. But yeah, I don't, I I, I agree with you, John, that the platforms probably aren't, aren't going to be that much. I mean, they're already 
pretty dominant. They already have a lot of users. They already have users that come back to them. They're sticky and, and coming and, uh, and then they have merchants. I think, you know, the, if, if this turns out to allow more merchants to maybe go to Pinduoduo, then it, they could benefit there. But I think even after Alibaba's, uh, fine, Pinduoduo is still talking about doing 1P, and part of the reason for that is to uh, because they're not getting merchants to come on to sell those things that users want. So, you know, yeah, we'll we'll my the big my big uh, response there is we'll see. Yeah, not very interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it, in, a, in a certain sense. I mean, with big tech in China, it's too big to fail, right? Uh, imagine if you know Alibaba was taken so low that Taobao and Tmall were basically non-functional. What would happen to the online uh, retail space if that were to happen? Same thing with Tencent and WeChat and and all the other stuff that they have. Um, and so, kind of going back to what I mentioned before, you know, and kind of in our part of our initial discussion is that a lot of this is about the regulators flexing their muscles and saying, "Hey, look, we're paying attention." Not only are we paying attention, but we can actually do something about it now. So all that nonsense that was going on before, you better be very, very careful because we're watching. And uh, if if we feel like you've crossed a line, we might just have to step in. Yeah, I, I think one way that I think about this, what, what, one thing that I think about here is like that, yes, these companies may be too big to fail, but none of them is too big to be stagnant while their competitors are growing. And that's what the mm-hmm. regulators can, can, can do. That's how they can, you know, put in the screws on them. And for, if you're, you know, if you look at these multiples for like these companies. Like Yeah, exactly. But, and, and if you look at these multiples for these companies, especially those that are publicly listed, right? Stagnate, stagnation is just as, as, is tantamount to failing because all of their investors are mm. expecting them to grow at these, you know, very, you know, very dramatic rates. But anyways, we don't we got we got a, a schedule thing for 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 John here. We don't want to take too much of his time. But uh we, so I want to get to some of these other areas here. FinTech obviously um has been you know has been a, a bigger issue and financial or ant group is the big, you know, the halted IPO that kind of was supposedly going to or potentially going to be the the biggest IPO in history and now we don't know what's going to go on with that company. But it, there's a lot going on and it's more than just whether or not, you know, Jack Ma, you know, has the biggest bank. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about that. We don't have to, to go over it too much, but uh, what are the basics here? Yeah. Also, just 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 uh, a quick logistical point. The hard stop was for Friday. Uh, today, okay, cool. I'm, I'm pretty open. So if you guys just okay, want to keep going, That's it's good. fine. That's good. Yeah. So, I mean, so again, I think that, I mean, as with, as with uh, the Alibaba fine, uh, so too with the Ant Group um, IPO, um, I think that both Alibaba and Ant Group were just the most obvious examples um, and the easiest ones to be made of. But then also at the same time, if we look at Ant Group, um, I think that there, there are, there were some very valid concerns uh, about um, the uh, potential impact that their business model would have on the financial system where if anything were to actually go wrong. And that's really what it came down to. A lot of people look at the speech that Jack Ma gave um, in October and was like, okay, so this came before that, therefore, 
that caused this, um, or A came before B, and so A caused B, which I think, you know, in most cases just is probably not not completely true. I mean, certainly the the way the government acted and the swiftness that they acted at, soon after that speech does kind of, I think, maybe signal something was going on there. But I don't think at the same time that the IPO was halted because of, because of that speech. Um, I think that uh, at the end of the day, Someone at some point was looking at the numbers and said, "You know what? We got to stop this because this is crazy." And then, so it's I, honestly, I think it was probably more of a, a thing of just regulatory oversight or or kind of you know someone waking up in the middle of the night going, "Oh shit!" and then putting those putting those wheels into motion. Because if you do look at how uh, the overall fintech and the 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 way that these loans are generated, and then who uh, who has the loans on their books is can be actually quite problematic. Um, and so the way it works is basically that Ant Group or WeBank, which is owned by Tencent, um, or any other kind of online financial financial company, basically what they do is they have a they have a credit model, they have a risk model, and they uh, evaluate uh, their they evaluate people uh, based on that, and then they make recommendations uh, to to the banks. The banks are supposed to do their own due diligence and and evaluate these these customers for loans. And then, and then they would then they would give the loan. But the issue is, is that Ant Group and all these other companies they were uh, telling these banks, hey, you know, you should give a loan to this person. You know, we think that they're they're pretty good. But then they weren't actually keeping most of those loans on their own books. And so, if anything did go wrong, if there were any defaults, Ant Group would uh, would not be uh, holding the bag. Um, instead, it would be uh, the banks and the financial system. And we we kind of learned from the U.S. housing bubble that uh, originating loans or having a process in that, and then not having any of the loans on your books is a potential moral hazard that can uh, bloom into a very big problem. Exactly. So, I just I'm gonna. You know, maybe this is unfair, but in in another publication called the FT, there's an article that came out today. I'm just going to read one sentence, and then we're going to maybe pivot a little bit. So it said, the government believes, and this is uh, one person close to financial regulators in Beijing, the government believes big tech's monopoly power comes from their control of data. It wants to end that. Mm. So switching a little bit to the data laws, there's a really cool chart on page 21 of your guys' internet report that says it's data protection, three pillars of legal regime on data. And so you have kind of, it's, and I haven't seen a graphic like this, and it does make a lot of sense, but it's like there's a big circle in the background, and that's the data security law encompasses like kind of a little bit of everything. And I mean, maybe do you want to, do you want to finish this? But I, I could do it real quick. Cybersecurity law is kind of on the side and then overlapping with cybersecurity law is the uh, personal information protection law where you have stuff that's outside cyberspace and stuff that's inside cyberspace but it all it all kind of it all kind of encompasses they're all there's a lot of overlap here is that the kind of the takeaway um, mm-hmm. yeah no exactly that's exactly it and you know and when we kind of Zoom out a little bit uh, when we're looking at you know a, a lot of the a lot of the moves by the government they are very much related to uh, control. Data is uh, a big big part of that, and so you know we were Elliot was asking about the winners uh, and the losers from the antitrust regulation. The biggest winner is probably the government, and so when it comes to breaking down the walled garden, uh, walled gardens, it's not just about platform to platform. Uh, it's also about platform to public. 
or, or public to, to, to platform. One of the big things that the government has been talking a lot about is these open data platforms where uh, public data, um, so data generated by the government is made public and usable by third parties. Data, data generated by private enterprises is made public and usable by third parties. So if we're looking in, in, from, from a lens of data, uh, we can see that you know, the DSL, so the data security law, the CSL, and the PIPL, they're all related uh, to a certain degree um, to, I think, that what, what amounts to a very, very big ambitious and maybe not even achievable project that the government has their sights set on, which is the kind of bringing together all the public and private data somehow and making data exchanges and making basically, you know, making it easier for data to flow uh, throughout the economy. And so in order to do that, you have to have these basic fundamental definitions, what is okay, what is not okay, both in terms of this term that is coming into more and more use data national security but then also when it comes to you know infra- cybersecurity in- infrastructure and so how well protected are your key infrastructure like telecoms roads electricity uh, etc uh, but then also how data is being collected and and processed i mean again if you look at uh in terms of platform to platform competition, if there was a bit of a wild uh, a wild west there, when it comes to data collection and usage, it's even more so uh, because you know if we look at platforms, we can th- th- their behavior is observable, right? We can see okay, so Alibaba is trying to screw over JD somehow, right? That's that's clear. We can basically see that, but when it comes to data, all of that's happening in the background, um, and it's all happening on your smartphone. It's happening on your computer. It's being collected. You're not, you're not even sure what's being collected and then how it's used. I mean, who the heck knows? Yeah, I think that there are some really big, there's some really big questions. You know, number one is, you know, what is the impact? Because the, the, the laws are, are, I mean, we got to see how it all plays out, right? You can read the law, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know how it's going to be implemented and enforced and how everyone's going to, I mean, not just the regulators, but everyone else is going to react to it, right? If you have a business partner, who has some data and they don't want to share it with you for some reason, they might start not sharing it with you because of uh, these, these laws. And then you, you kind of, you know, so there's like, there's a lot of, um, or, or for any potential. Reason. And then there's like, also, um, there's yeah. also, you know, if, if this information does become public and you kind of wonder how anonymized it is, if it, if they kind of mess that up, you're talking about a, a massive treasure trove for scam artists, uh, which there's, you know, not a small amount in yeah, uh, yes. China. And so, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there are some risks, you know, that, to this. We, uh, we've done a few stories on uh, the data gray markets, black markets. And uh, what we found was super, super interesting is that in most cases, the data that is leaked um, is usually it's leaked because of someone on the inside mm. who in some cases should not have had access to it in the first place. So, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, because the data was not secured. Um, And so you have uh, some real fundamental issues in terms of data security inside of companies, right? You have uh, personal information 
unencrypted, stored in plain text, someone can just go and, uh, you know, maybe they can just print it out really easily, or they can just download it onto a USB very, very easily. And we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of, of people in, in, in some cases. And so on the one hand, it's definitely um, kind of how these platforms are using your data to uh, engage in let's call it abusive behavior like price discrimination or other kinds of quote unquote personalized targeting. But then the other side of this is just poor operational uh, security when it comes to mm. um, how, how data is handled. And, and none of these companies, I mean, this is, this is what we, you know, you mentioned earlier about how it was kind of the wild west where all these companies are just growing as, as quickly as possible. And, you know, none of no company that's focused on growth, you know, growth at all costs is also going to be that concerned about its its data security, and I think that that <laughs> kind of conflict <laughs> leads to a lot of this stuff. But I I, I do want I want to give uh, you know my co-host James some credit here uh, in that he uh, James I mean you are you are flagging the data stuff very early mm. with too kind with Elliot. with Ant you know I think back what was it this like yeah December something like that but I mean, it's turned out to be quite a big. Uh, you know, a, a, as big of a theme as, as I think you predicted it would be. But and also we had we had Kendra Schaefer on a couple a couple months ago to talk about the the data legislation. And it seems as though and, and, mm. and John, I, I want your thoughts here is that it, the way that it, it like the metaphor I'm using in my mind is that China is attempting to do for data the way that, you know, countries do for other key key infrastructure, right? Whether it be their oil, right? They have, you know, they have their refineries, they have their pipelines, whether it be their water system, you know, whether it be natural gas and things like that, you know, electricity, that essentially China is trying to set up a, a system of kind of, uh, you know, kind of public commons, I guess, in some ways, right? For, for managing this, yeah, managing this, 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 uh, this, what they might see as a public is it both a public and a private good, right? But trying to to kind of compartmentalize it and saying, okay, well, this is public, this is private, and we're going to secure it in this way and that way. Yeah, am, am I am I going somewhere here? <laughs> That's the question. I think so. No, I. I I, I think so. I mean, again, like you look at the United States, I mean, uh, politicians and activists of various stripes have been saying something similar for a long, long time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always, you know, the the Pentagon and, and defense contractors are always trying to, you know, get people worked up and scared about uh, terrorist attacks on elect- like our our key infrastructure and, you know, the poor state of our, of our cybersecurity when it comes to these kinds of things. And so concerns around data, around uh, infrastructure, but then also, as you mentioned, you know, data as infrastructure, um, data as a, a national security um, item, I think is not necessarily unique to China at, at all. I think that part of it is just that they're, they're the one, they're, it's the most obvious uh, what China is doing around this. Again, you look at the the market, the um, the regulatory environment, and how it's different in China versus the United States, where Facebook, Google, all these big tech companies, they have you know they, laws on the books already when it comes to privacy. Uh, they have laws on the books already when it comes to uh, consumer protection. And then, of course, you also have you know the fact that uh, the United States is extremely litigious, and so they have to be careful of civil lawsuits um, as well. Uh, and in China, you really don't have that consumer protection. 
I think is one of those things where the, the Chinese government, they talk about it a lot. They, 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 but at the same time, you know, there have, there have been very obvious ways that uh, consumers have not been protected. I mean, the, the melamine scandal, um, the thing with uh, toothpaste uh, years and years ago. And so a lot of this, again, is just that China has been kind of, they don't really have a lot of these laws. They don't really have a lot of these rules and regulations. And the regulators themselves aren't really sure what to, uh, what to do about some of this stuff. And so with these laws, you, you finally have this regulatory framework. Uh, you have something that uh, the courts can deal with. They can reference that uh, the pros- public prosecutors can, can, um, can deal with and, and, and reference as well. Um, and so really, it's just, again, about just kind of creating this framework that really was not there in, in the first place. Uh, and so part of that means that they are um, explicating uh, a lot of things that I think are taken for granted in other areas. I mean, again, you look at the issues that uh, Donald Trump and even uh, Joe Biden have with uh, TikTok, WeChat, and other uh, Chinese internet companies, and a lot of it has to do with the national security aspect of data, of personal data, and how that could potentially be used in a variety of ways uh, to the disinterest of the American uh, country and, and people. And when we look at the DSL, when we look at um, cybersecurity, all all these things, it's very, very similar. But again, it's just a little bit more visible because they've never really had anything like it before. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Uh, I want to move on to to, to cryptocurrency. Uh, although, I mean, I want you to tell me why I'm wrong here, basically. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I have from the, I don't know, I, as long as I can remember, since, since, since Bitcoin became a thing, I have, I've heard stories about, you know, Bitcoin miners in China, they, they, because in some places, especially that you can get really cheap uh, electricity and you have internet access. So they just rent out floors of these buildings and just mine Bitcoin, right? Especially in areas like in Western China, right? Whether it's Xinjiang, Qinghai, Sichuan province, things like that, uh, or places like that. And, you know, every year there's another you know, r- report that comes out and says, oh, well, you know, cryptocurrency mining is fi- is going to be tracked down upon. And then it keeps going. <laughs> and the, the, my initial impression is at first was, okay, well, they're cracking down on cryptocurrency again. Or, well, uh, it's another time that they're reporting that. Who knows if this is real this mm. time? So tell me why I'm wrong here. Tell me why this is real this time, or or maybe maybe it's not real. I don't know. Well, I mean, you look at the uh, the overall hash rate coming from China, and it's going down. That's I think that's that's the clearest indication of how serious uh, the government mm-hmm. is. Uh, and so we got a bit of a preview of this um, actually earlier this year. Beijing, the city government of Beijing, was going around and asking companies with uh, uh, significant operations in, in, with, in servers how much of their servers were being used uh, to, to mine cryptocurrency. I don't, we never got a clear answer um, as to you know, what, what um, information the Beijing government got from these companies, but it was one of the first kind of indications that the government was taking an interest in this. And then it just kind of follows, follows from there. Very, sim- very similar to uh, the antitrust and, the, and the, the data security where it was one kind of big headline moment that was followed by kind of these small, uh, kind of uh, smaller steps and, and, and smaller moves. And so, but, but it amounts to 
these uh, places, uh, Inner Mongolia, uh, Sichuan, and uh, Xinjiang uh, in particular, slowly but surely tightened the noose on um, any company that was uh, found to be uh, mining cryptocurrency. And so it's not just Bitcoin. It could be any cryptocurrency, mostly Bitcoin, though or any company that was you know, engaged in some business related to cryptocurrency mining, which in the case of Sichuan could have been you know, a small private hydropower uh, plant um, that were uh, dotting uh, the countryside there. And so if you look at uh, both anecdotally, you talk to people in the industry, uh, you look at uh, the state of the hash rate, uh, both in terms of of transactions per second, but then also in terms of kind of where the hash rate is coming from. And you can see a pretty, in terms of hash rate per second, you, or transactions per second, you could see a pretty big dip June, July. And as we come into August, it's picking back up. Uh, anecdotally, you know, you look at, you know, people are uh, selling off their 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 mining rigs on secondhand platforms, and they're also shipping it to Canada and the U.S. and 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 parts of Europe as well. And so it's kind of interesting where, on the one hand, more and more cryptocurrency mining probably will not continue in China, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the Chinese are less are necessarily less involved, because what they're doing is they're just setting up shop in in different parts of the country. Uh, and so you know for taking taking the position of a of a, a crypto a crypto bear i mean or excuse me a crypto bull uh this is good because the chinese government can't necessarily uh, influence bitcoin or or some of these other cryptocurrencies as much as they could because they don't have jurisdiction any longer and so one one could argue that you know for the longevity of these cryptocurrencies and, and bitcoin in particular this is probably a good thing so it forces them to go into Kazakhstan and Tajikistan or, you know, these places in Central right. Asia where, you know, maybe they're, they're not going to have the same bulk of, yeah, may, not going to have the same bulk of mining as China, but it's very hard for any of those countries to get on the same page when it comes to regulation. So it's kind of, kind of diffusing the risk a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's really, so there's a ahead. great chart in, uh, on page 25. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the one bringing up this stuff. In the uh, in the report, it shows that number uh, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network in China would rank number nine among all Chinese cities in terms yeah. of emission output at its peak expected. Sorry, expected peak in 2024. And so you see, like the the, the worst is Tangshan, and then uh, was that Shanghai is the second, Suzhou, Nanyang, Chongqing, Shanghai, yeah. Nanjing, Tianjin, Ordos, and then Bitcoin. So that's like wow, wow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it, it's also incredible how much heavy industry is in Tangshan. But that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, coal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's. Uh, I mean, bef before before we let you go here, I do think it's. Uh, you know, you also have a, a section here on kind of the bumpy road ahead for for Chinese tech IPOs mm. and how you know. We, we, I think the big ones obviously have been you know Ant Group, DD, and what we've seen for these companies that have already listed it, it in many ways, the ones that have been the high flyers have just completely tanked because I think that it, it does appear that wall street is a little China, you know, they they don't want to touch China as much as they did before. Right. So what I, I, I mean, you're not a, I can't expect you to, to be the, um, you know, 
the Spengali for all of this, but uh, you know, what should what should investors expect going forward for Chinese tech IPOs, uh, and what are the what do they have to worry about that maybe they didn't have to worry about before? So, in terms of, I think the most obvious is going to be location. Um, we can see that already companies that were considering, and some of that were even in the process of listing in the U.S., um, have stopped. And I think that if you look at kind of companies like ByteDance, for example, ByteDance is kind of the the big IPO that everyone's uh, been waiting for. And there was before before the DD uh, kerfuffle, there was a lot of talk about them listing, them spinning out TikTok and listing that in the U.S. And that's very much up in the air uh, right now. Whether or not Wall Street would have an appetite for that, I think, is a big question. But then also whether or not ByteDance would want to invite. Oh, it's, if it's TikTok, they'll have an appetite for it. Yeah, sure. But then uh, from from ByteDance's yeah. pers- perspective as well, whether Sorry, whether or not whether or not ByteDance would actually want to invite that type of scrutiny, and also whether or not somehow mm-hmm. uh, the Chinese government, you know, now that they're now that they have much more stricter kind of IPO approval process that includes data and cybersecurity, whether or not they would allow it in in uh, the first place. And so I think that number one, U.S. is going to become much, much less attractive uh, for these for these tech companies. And then we're probably going to see more uh, in Hong Kong. Now, the big question is, what about uh, the venture capitalists? What about these, you know, big investors that need their exit? I think that's going to be really, really interesting to kind of look at. I mean, just from my own perspective, kind of see how uh, venture capital and funding uh, pre-IPO, you know, kind of, you know, uh, from seed to, let's say, stage you know, round uh, DE or whatever, how that begins to change. Because a lot of the venture capital uh, that's going on in China has been a US dollar. And so in order for these VC to get an exit, they need to, these companies to either get bought by a US company or or have a US dollar transaction, or uh, for them to list in the United States. Um, and so this that's going to be super interesting. But again, it's, it's, it's quite clear that uh, the mainland, uh, the Chinese government, they want Less companies to go public uh, in places that they can't control, like the U.S., and more in places that they can. So, you know, the Shanghai stock market, star market, uh, and then, of course, um, Hong Kong uh, as well. Hong Kong is becoming friendlier and friendlier to uh, to tech uh, IPOs. And so I think we're probably going to see more of that happening um, as time goes on. But I, I mean, there's a there's a few things that I wonder about when it comes to all this is one is, I mean, we can we don't have to go into a whole lot of detail is about the the link between corruption and and these IPOs right and that you know so many of these IPOs have famously been you know how you know many of these officials have gotten wealthy and you know whether or not it's directly you know maybe there's a white glove thing but it, there are a number of stories about how you know especially in the 90s and 2000s when companies went public then you know there were that's how a certain family got got wealthy right and i'm wondering how much of the regulation is is attached to anti-corruption i don't know if you can answer this but how much of these these the the idea of having you know it's been anti-corruption has been a, been a big emphasis over the last ten years or the last eight years or so, and I, and I wonder about how how much of these kind of IPO uh, restrictions and you know making sure that they're you know domestic and not international is about that. Um, I don't know if you can answer it, but yeah. that's that's something that that's on my mind. Yeah, I mean I can't answer it directly just because I don't I don't really have any 
special insight around that. But I mean, you look at cryptocurrency, uh, you look at IPOs, and maybe even some other some other areas. And it's clear that this is this is a way for people to get money out of the country. Uh, and capital controls have been a serious issue for the Chinese government for a long, long time. I'm sure that you know all three of us have stories of you know waiting in the bank, waiting in the bank for you know three hours to actually get money changed or to try to transfer money right. <laughs> uh, from mainland you know back to family at home or or whatever. Um, and so they're doing a good job, you might say, uh, in that regard. But when it comes to you know o- uh, over the counter. Uh, crypto trades, or you know, in the case of you know these IPOs, I mean, almost all of these companies are VIEs headquartered in Cayman Islands, right? I mean, so that, talk about a great place to park your money outside of China. Mm. And so, you know, I don't know specifically, you know, kind of um, how correct your intuition is, uh, Elliot, in this regard. But I think that uh, it's pretty clear that the government, you know, really still uh, wants to control uh, capital outflows uh, from mainland to the rest of the world. And whether or not they feel like, you know, that they've gone far enough, I think is still to be seen. Yeah, I, I think an interesting thing is an interesting thing is, you know, on onshore mainland markets tend to have much higher valuations. The problem is there's not quite the same amount of liquidity. And so if you do see like a big company like ByteDance or maybe some other big companies, you know, IPOing around the same time. I mean, it could be disruptive just on a liquidity basis to other other listings in China uh, on mainland exchanges. But I wonder if, you know, if VCs would feel comfortable, you know, maybe getting compensated with a higher multiple uh, and a higher valuation and then making, you know, maybe having a harder time converting their, you know, exit currency into a globally fluid currency and you know, kind of what what the puts and takes there will be. Yeah, obviously, if they don't have a choice, they don't have a choice. But uh, yeah, it is. It would be interesting to see how that plays out. These are once once again things that we can't really answer. But yeah. you know, it does seem you know for those of us who've been in China, so much of the like foreign capital is hand in hand with you know often you know wealthy and powerful people in China, you know, and their financial interests, which are often international, right? So. If you, what I what I wonder about is, you know, we we saw, for example, how the proposed you know Blackstone acquisition of of Soho was was denied, and if there's any, I, I can't think of a of a foreign private equity group that has better connections and and is viewed more favorably in Beijing than Blackstone. Uh, and so one thing that I wonder about with a lot of these IPO restrictions and foreign investment inst- restrictions is just if, if foreign capital is just not high on the priority list mm. and what exactly that means for investors and what that means, you know, in, in Beijing and how they're, how they're thinking about that. Now, John, I, I don't know if you can answer that question, but <laughs> it's just a thought on my mind. No, again, Again, I don't. I don't have any any special insight. Um, but this does remind me of a conversation um, I had when I was still in Beijing, and I was talking to to someone who has more contact with with people uh, than I do. And one of the things that they talked about was that in times of external uh, instability, China has a, um, a historical tendency to turtle. And to really kind of uh, look inward, 
to kind of build barriers and walls uh, around itself and really kind of, again, look inward and make sure that everything is stable inside of the country uh, in face of uh, the chaos and instability outside of the country. And so, uh, I mean, we're kind of going into geopolitics here a little bit, um, but I think that if we were to somehow talk to the top leaders, I seriously doubt that uh, they're thinking much about, you know, investors and, uh, you know, these people who want to get their money out of the country. And as, as, as James said, make it into something more uh, globally liquid. I think they're much more concerned about making sure that the country is stable, the communist party remains, remains paramount, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think everything else is going to be secondary. Yeah. I, I do think that's kind of a, a general logic that explains a lot of what's going on, but we don't have to go too much more mm-hmm. into it, obviously. But, um, and, you know, we have, uh, we already are, are going on right around 50 minutes, I think. But uh, so we should probably let you f- 55 minutes. OK, that's longer <laughs> than we should. Anyways, we should probably let you go. So, John, can you tell us, uh, you know, can you plug what you want to plug? You know, tell us about the report. Tell us about how people can follow you on social media, things like that. Yeah. So the China Internet Report, we'll have the link, I suppose, in the in the podcast uh, show notes. There's a, there's a free version and then there's a, there's a paid version um, as well. Uh, obviously, the paid version is going to have a lot more uh, a lot more detail. But this is this is uh, as uh, Elliot mentioned at the beginning. This is the the fourth um, annual China Internet Report. So actually, this was um, first begun uh, five years ago by by Edith Young, um, who uh, uh, is uh, usually based in in Hong Kong. She's a venture capital uh, venture capitalist. Has a few different funds. That she manages, so she actually started this, and then um, SEMP has been working with her on it uh, ever ever since. Um, so you know, it was a lot of fun putting together. There's uh, a lot of interesting things that have been going on, and you know, when I first joined SEMP, I was very much kind of uh, expecting to cover technology like I always had, which was looking at kind of startups and uh, interesting features and products and some of the uh, the, the price wars um, and cash burning that, that had been going on. Uh, little did I know that it would turn into uh, what it has turned into, uh, which just goes to show, you know, if you're interested in technology in China, it's never too late. <laughs> It's it's also never never it's probably never what you expect a couple exactly. Of years earlier. Exactly. It's never boring. That's also I think fair to fair to say. Never well. boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, John Artman, thank you so much for joining us uh, again. We we really appreciate for we appreciate having you yeah, here. Thanks, John. No problem. It's it's it's, it's uh, my pleasure. Thanks again to John Artman, editor at South China Morning Post, for joining us. Uh, Again, uh, it was really illuminating, I think. Uh, it really helped kind of – that whole report has really helped me uh, kind of frame what tech regulation is you know, in my mind. I also want to encourage uh, – there was a techno newsletter that uh, Wei, Wei Shan – I think he was the, the main guy behind it – that also kind of dove a little bit into kind of what – uh, each of the uh, the regulators are are going into, and I encourage um, uh, our listeners to, to to look up that as well. But James, do you have any thoughts on um, on our conversation with John? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was great, very helpful, very uh, insightful. The report is fantastic. I definitely recommend people go check it out. There's one chart we didn't get a chance to talk about that I really liked. Um, which kind of showed the different sectors and their year-over-year user growth and then the amount of user penetration that they've achieved 
And if you look at that chart, you can kind of pretty clearly see certain sectors have um, are growing fast and are not that far penetrated into their kind of user growth, uh, kind of, I guess, TAM or whatever it could get to. And that's that was pretty exciting, pretty cool to see. Uh, lots of good charts, you know, interesting visuals, um, uh, all around good stuff. Yeah, really well done thing. And I think, you know, the the questions we obviously need to talk about, there's so much we need to get into that we you often don't have enough time to get into, either on a singular podcast or just re- we would like to record podcasts every single day. Uh, <laughs> it's not how our uh, <laughs> how our lives are organized. But uh, what we would like to uh, to ask our listeners that if you know, you have any recommendations for guests that we should have on? We would love that, especially for some of these top these topics that we've talked about or touched on somewhat thus far. Uh, Ed Tech, Evergrande, and every single week there seems to be uh, another area to go into. So, you know, please, uh, you know, reach out to us and and you know, give us your ideas. A deep dive on Evergrande, I think, would be very. A very interesting podcast. If you, anyone has any uh, recommendations for guests for that, um, yeah, please hit us up on Twitter. Uh, I'm James Hall X. Elliot Zagman is Elliot Zagman. Um, and L L I O D T Z A H E M A N. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of double letters in there. Anyways, and for our podcast, our Twitter account, Podcast China Tech Invest is the, tw- the Twitter account. Yeah, and uh, thanks as always to the folks at TechNode for making this happen. And thanks as always to our listeners. And we'll catch you next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye-bye now.